I think the the way to win is to simply outcare everyone else. Hey there, Powder Keg fans. I'm your host, Matt Hunkler, and this is episode 89 of Powder Keg Igniting Startups, the show for entrepreneurs, leaders, and innovators building remarkable tech companies in areas outside of Silicon Valley. Today, we'll be talking about how to raise capital and how that experience can evolve company culture. Uh, I'm really interested in, in talking about this because uh, there's a difference in raising early rounds, like seed rounds, uh, and how venture co- capital can really kind of change the culture of a company as you go from that bootstrap to venture scale type of business. And to do that, we brought in two experts, uh, one on the fundraising side that has helped probably dozens, if not hundreds of companies raise (laughs) capital and a rising entrepreneur here in the Midwest. Uh, First up, we have someone who is part of the Indianapolis tech community and has been for more than a decade. She's worked with, as I mentioned, uh, probably hundreds of entrepreneurs and leaders uh, to help them get a clearer view of their financial and operational environments and make intelligent decisions. She leads a technology practice at M Accounting, which is a company that turns finance from a necessary burden into a strategic asset, specifically for startups and high growth tech companies. Please help me welcome the principal and director of M Accounting, Nicole Wallace. Hi, how are you? By the way, it's been two decades, but oddly, I'm only 25 years old. I don't know how I pulled that off. <laughs> but who's keeping count, who's right? Who's keeping count? And next up, we have a young entrepreneur who graduated with a bachelor's from Purdue University in 2018, and just a year later, co-founded Socio Labs, where he's the CEO. Uh, it's an event tech company that lets uh, organizers build apps that optimize event experience. We'll hear a lot more about this app and the business and an extremely impressive growth that they're seeing right now in this episode, as well as his experience. Uh, raising capital. Yarkin, help me with your last name. Yeah, Sakucholo. Sakucholo. Yeah, correct. Please help me welcome to the show, Yarkin Sakucholo. Well, it's great to be here. Thank you. Great to be here, too. Yarkin is from Turkey, and his company actually has operations in Turkey as well. Yeah. Oh, we're going to talk about that, too, then. Yeah. That's really cool. Well, let's kick this thing off. Yarkin, tell us a little bit about your business. Can you give me kind of the, the elevator pitch for Socio? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, we are a business to business software as a service company. And we help organizations ranging from small businesses up to large multinational enterprises optimize their events. This could be conferences, trade shows, internal, external meetings, expos. Basically, whenever more than, I would say, 50 to 100 people get together for longer than a day, our software becomes very useful. Awesome. Can you tell me like maybe some of the events that we may have heard of our brands who have used your software? Oh, yeah. We have over, I would say, around 400 customers in 37 different countries right now. Uh, some of the names that you, you might know is Google is a customer. I've heard of them, yeah. Yeah, yeah decent, <laughs> very decent company. Yeah. Uh, Microsoft, Microsoft is a customer, PepsiCo, Electronic Arts, uh, Purdue University, Harvard University, Stanford University, some uh, very innovative companies. Well, I'm, I'm eager to hear how this kind of all came to be and all came together. Uh, do you mind maybe sharing some of your background and how you ended up starting this company? Were you always yeah. entrepreneurial as a kid? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I would say I have an interesting story. Uh, like Nicole said, I am originally from Turkey. I was born and raised in a small Mediterranean town in Turkey. Uh, I, I do come from a family of entrepreneurs, so honestly, through my life, th- this has always been the natural next step for me. Uh, with that, very early on, I knew that I wanted to be in tech, and I knew that U.S. was the place to be if you wanted to be in tech entrepreneurship. Uh, so 
very early on, I wanted to come here. I got a scholarship when I was in high school, uh, and I basically left home when I was 15 and flew to Arizona. And what, what was it about tech that got you so excited to fly from your country at age yeah. 15? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's. I think it's the change that you can make, right? The this and the scale that you can make it at, right? I think those are what what attracts me to tech greatly like today the fact that i could sit down in purdue university with a few of my friends and uh, you know write some code design something and uh, deploy that globally and have uh, companies using us and paying us to use the service and the product in 37 different countries uh, that's not possible in a lot of areas right tech is tech is one of those areas where the distribution channels are super uh, it's very quick, very real time. Uh, so yeah, I, I would say that that is what really attracted me to tech. Do you remember if there was like one company or one entrepreneur or one piece of technology that you were like, wow, like this this gets me excited and gets me thinking about starting my own thing? Yeah, I would say like a lot of entrepreneurs, I believe I was very attracted to business to consumer when I was getting started. As that that is what I was exposed to as a consumer myself, uh, right? Uh, so. I mean, like legendary companies like Google's, you know, uh, Microsoft products, Facebook's, Twitter's of the world uh, clearly attracted me. Uh, to me, the the really turning point was when I realized that in order for companies, these companies to run, they needed software as well. And that's where I was exposed to the uh, world of business to business. And it it. I would say it really changed my mind and my life, I would say, from that point yeah, on. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So so talk to me about the idea for Socia. How'd that come about? Yeah, well, uh, after I went to Arizona, I studied for a few years for high school there. Then I got into Purdue University uh, to study computer science once again with the, with the goal of becoming a tech entrepreneur. Awesome uh, program I, there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, at that point, I'll be honest, I... I, I taught and assumed that the only way to be a tech entrepreneur is to you know know how to code know how to program that it wasn't really exposed to the side of business that isn't necessarily about building but selling marketing supporting right uh, but yeah at at my years at Purdue, which uh, I actually never graduated from Purdue, I actually dropped out with my co-founders to start this company. Uh, but yeah, I was exposed to events, right? I have first started attending events, and one thing that I realized was they are very inefficient when they are not planned right, right? I mean, as an attendee, you go there to network with people, right? Or to consume the content, you know, as a sponsor, you might be there to get ROI. Uh, but in reality, a lot of things are so ancient in the world of event planning that uh, you don't get what you're there for. It's 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 inefficient. inefficient. Uh, one thing that I, I was very lucky because after attending a lot of events, I had the chance to actually get involved with planning an event. And that's when I realized, you know, whatever I thought was inefficient from the perspective of the attendee was 100 times more inefficient <laughs> from the perspective of the event organizer. I can relate Matt to that. Matt knows nothing about <laughs> it. <laughs> it's, and as you know, you guys put on a lot of events. It's, it's very difficult, yeah. right? It's, 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 a, it's a hard job. And I do not believe that, uh, I would say it's a very underserved market in terms of how difficult it is and how uh, looking at the lack of automation and lack of 
great products in the market, right? There's there are a lot of products. Uh, it's it's all about for us. It's all about building that great product mm. that solves that entire issue for the event organizers. Well, and I, I want to dive into how you got the early traction, decided to raise a round of capital. Yeah. But first, what, would love to hear kind of how you got to meet Nicole. Yeah. And uh, that that power combo came to be. Absolutely. Uh, I actually met Nicole and got exposed to Emma Counting at one of Powder Keg's events. Uh, you know, I, I would go ahead and uh, say this here, at Socio works with, I would say, over 1,000 events a year. So we are very exposed to how events are uh, planned and built. When events are done right, they are very powerful. Mm-hmm. And I think we have a very good example today, right? The only reason I met Emma Counting, I got a chance to work with Nicole, was because I happened to attend one of Powder Keg's events. Mm-hmm. Went there, watched a few uh, entrepreneurs pitch, and then you came up there and mentioned how you guys were using Emma Counting. Mm-hmm. And I took a screenshot of that logo and sent it to my chief of staff so that we can schedule a demo. I believe in a few weeks we were yeah. customers. We're yeah, we were. We, we started working together. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Well, Nicole, that sparks the question for you. How did you get plugged into this whole tech world? You know, you mentioned two decades <laughs> in the indie tech scene. You've yeah. helped so many companies raise rounds of capital, go through an acquisition process, probably right. even acquire companies mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. How did you? What was your first exposure into the tech world? Uh, you know, I, it was absolutely um, serendipitous. I was at IU getting my degree and I was at an honors banquet and I met um, a, a local uh, NBA who was coming here to a local tech startup software artistry mm-hmm. and he recruited that's me. that's like the original for those that it's don't the know the history of, the Genesis, of Indianapolis no pun intended. Yeah. yes it is and yeah. uh, <laughs> there were a few others at the time um, that were getting traction I believe like Powerway there were a few others made to manage came along um, but for those that don't know could you maybe give some context to what some of the software artistry founders and leadership well, went, went off to start afterwards thing. I mean it, you know, at the time, um, we were getting ready to IPO. Um, we had, uh, you know, we had very lean accounting staff, and we were, um, we were they were starting the roadshow, and, and we were doing a more traditional for 1995. Don't laugh, Yarkin. <laughs> uh, more traditional um, IPO, and um, as that progressed, you know, I'm obviously learning and understanding, but. Um, our founder, Don Brown, was very specific about um, wanting to seed capital, even at that stage of the company, um, in young potential entrepreneurs. And I think he's continued to leave that legacy throughout his additional endeavors. Um, like Interactive <laughs> like, Intelligence. Like a little company called Interactive Intelligence. And yeah. Um, and he's, of course, moved on again and, and is, is still doing exciting things and is still very much someone I bump into at my tech companies, my tech startups. Yeah. So he's still um, very active in the community. And, and there were many others. You know, Bill Godfrey is, of course, very active. And um, I'm one of the founders at a Primo. Exactly. I yeah. mean, we're, we're really seeing a lot of those um, initial, the people that came out of those initial companies um, come out and start their own companies. Um, but, you know, beyond that, there's a real, there's just a, a, such a momentum in the two decades I've been a part of it in terms of, um, you know, Purdue and um, local legislators and, and others really putting a lot of, and powder keg, putting a lot of energy behind um, giving a space for these young guys that may not have had a Don Brown, but have these great ideas like a Yarkin. That's my space right now. I have certainly 
Um, a lot of those legacy entrepreneurs and they're, they're either angel investors or they're still killing it in their respective businesses. And then I have a lot of 20 somethings coming out with these fantastic ideas that are really drawing on the momentum of those more established entrepreneurs and certainly the powder kegs and other ventures that are um, giving them the boost that they need to make connections and grow. That's really cool. Yeah. Yarkin, as a 20-something, are you in your 20s He's yet? He's not even, don't ask. Yeah. He's 23. I'm 23. <laughs> okay, there you go. So as a young 20-something who um, hadn't raised a round of capital yet, um, is that when you decided to kind of connect with them accounting? Or was it you had already raised kind of your initial round and you were looking to, to scale? No, he was looking to, he was, again, he yeah. put a lot of emphasis on, coming to us in that stage of his business with a proven concept, the right players in the right places at the time, which is still expanding, and um, and the traction he needed to come to me with, okay, I've got all these ideas. I know where I'm at right now. I know where I want to be. I know what I need in terms of capital. Um, and there are, you know, he was really, he's, he's remarkably savvy for his age. Frankly, I learned as much or more from him than he does from me. Um, he's very focused on the the different you, you call it the venture treadmill, but you know the the different um, approaches he could take to fundraising in terms of you know going big and and the all the ramifications that come with that versus maybe staying local or maybe going east or west coast but on a smaller scale. Do you, do you mind maybe sharing some of the the thought process be, behind some of those options and and why you decided? Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean. Um, I think a lot of entrepreneurs, first of all, I think focus is the most important thing you can have as an entrepreneur because, you know, at the end of the day, uh, a lot of things are very uncertain at the early stages and you have limited resources and by resources, it's not only money, it's it's mostly time, right? You, mm -hmm. you have limited time and limited focus. So you, you got to figure out where to focus very well. I think a lot of entrepreneurs, and this is definitely my two cents, right? Uh, a lot of entrepreneurs try to focus too much on raising capital and make that a KPI for themselves, right? Uh, and uh, they they lose sight on what really matters at the end of the day. Yes, it's it's absolutely, it, it's, it's extremely important to find right capital, uh, right amount of capital at the, at the right terms from, and most importantly, from the right folks, yeah. right? Uh, but at the end of the day, you're there to, build a business and the only reason you raise capital should be to serve that purpose uh, so for that reason I, I would say we have a different mindset in raising capital right i think if you're going to go ahead and raise capital you should know the algebra of your business very very well so what was it that you were focused on in those early days like pre-considering raising capital yeah talk to me about if the kpi wasn't fundraising, which I 100% agree, yeah. uh, is not the right KPI as, as an early stage company. Mm -hmm. What were those key KPIs or was there one that you were focusing everything towards? I think when you're first starting your only KPI or, and you know, some people call these OKRs or like a gazillion sure. names. Your All the acronyms. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, your main focus should be your product market fit, in my opinion. And right? for you, how are you measuring that? It's, well... First of all, a lot of things that you need to look at to measure it. To, to give you an idea of it, are, are you capable of selling this product? Are people actually wanting to buy your product? Once they buy your product, are they adopting your product? Once they adopt your product, are they, are they 
are they at a stage where, yeah, it's a nice to have, or would they not be able to do their jobs if they lose that product today, right? If you take it away from them, would they be able to survive without it? Or did it become so crucial and so critical to them that they can't live without it? What were were some of those early insights that you got that were key breakthrough moments in the evolution of Socio's product? Yeah, well, (laughs) very, very good question. I think, I mean, big moments for us were when people came to us, you know, with with problems, right? Because sometimes, let's be honest, right? Sometimes the the buyer is not necessarily sure what they are looking to buy. They just know that they have a problem, right? And they know that they need to solve it to be successful. I think the the big the, the, the checks on the checkboxes were when I knew that we had the product market fit is when people started coming to us and saying, I have this, this, and this problem. Well, guess what? We have built this product to solve that, that, and that problem. And maybe we haven't, we might not be able to solve the fourth one yet, but guess what? That is on our roadmap, right? Yeah. When, when that alignment is there, that's, that's very good. I think the second part is once they started using your product and without even the you know the renewal time coming they start talking about renewing they start talking about how they want to expand this uh, contract to you know like I'll, I'll just give you an example right you you might get started working with a company like pinterest is one of our clients on a few events that they put on right per per year yeah. and then you end up getting them to work with you on 100 events that they put on then 200 events that they put on that's that's basically a sign that you 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 have something going there, and in my opinion, um, and clearly I'm talking about B two B SaaS here. If you sure. if you are a hardware business and uh, you know like, or if you're a, a life life sciences businesses or businesses that I don't know much about, to be <laughs> to be very honest with you, you might need a lot of capital to get there. Right. In my opinion, if you're going to be running a business to business software as a service company. Uh, yes, uh, funds and capital could help you get there faster, but I do believe that there is very high value in not doing that, finding the product market fit, and even you know figuring out some of your go-to-market uh, on your own without a lot of outside outside capital, and then raising capital once you figure those things out. Because I promise you that you will know exactly what to do with that money instead of spending that money to figure out what you should be doing. And Nicole, I know you talk to a lot of companies that consider mm-hmm. raising funding. Um, how many, what percentage of those companies usually have that algebra figured out when they start talking to you about funding? Very few. Most of them are looking to me to help them figure out that algebra. Okay. They have different elements of their business that they fully understand. And then there's always those gaps we need to fill in. Um, What's the most basic formula that you're usually looking for when figuring out the algebra? And let's use B2B SaaS just to keep it as as an example. Well, you know, something, I'll kind of veer off your question for one second because, and and sort of answer it, but um, Yarkin has a really balanced approach. So even, even, you know, in this pre-raise time period, um, he may be driven by finding that product market fit, but he did it in a, in a with a, a more holistic view, which fills in a lot of those gaps. Because if he's constantly focused on customer success and product market fit, then the the retention and expansion and then contraction metrics that we can quantify on a spreadsheet become very operational. It's, is my 
customer success team doing the right things, managing things the right way, communicating the right way? Did my product get developed or is it being maintained in a way that meets those needs or solve those problems? And is sales communicating that the same way? Is marketing branding me the same way? That holistic approach makes it really easy for investors to see his passion, his message, the, the problem he's trying to solve. And it makes it a lot easier for me to quantify it yeah. from that point. Um, so I guess in a long-winded way to answer that, because coming back, that that's the gap is I can make the numbers say whatever you want to say, but if operationally or if behaviorally or culturally you're not handling your, running your business that way, then it's not going to be conveyed to investors in a way that's compelling. Yeah. yeah. The, so the, some of those metrics that, I mean, came to mind when you're talking about customer attention, yeah. you know, churn being one of those, those metrics that's being on the output side right. uh, of that algebra equation, um, customer acquisition costs. All those. Being, I mean, ARR, churn, CAC, uh, you mentioned CAC, customer acquisition cost, um, lifetime value. I mean, these things are all... They, they shouldn't drive the business, but they should be good leading indicators of, of what we need to do to, um, we, we had a big discussion, Yarkin and I had a meeting this morning, and we had a big discussion around, you know, the, the size of business and, um, you know, specific markets we might target and those kinds of things. Um, the the Out of that should come some of those KPIs that we need to measure. We shouldn't be using the KPIs to say, okay, let's sell more of this. In other here's a perfect example. Should we sell a big enterprise deal? Are we worried about customer concentration if we sell a big enterprise deal and they churn off? Well, I'm not going to turn to a sales guy in the room and say, don't sell a million dollar deal. You know what I mean? So, so it's, it's, we will react to that accordingly, but it's a factor to consider. Sure. So yeah, all the, the, the metrics are really all the same. Again, it, it comes back to um, getting, going that layer deeper, which again, with that holistic approach, we're able to go now a layer deeper and say, what are my sales team's KPIs that give me this booking result that I want? And then what is my marketing team's inbound goal that gets me to this, um, the number of meetings and the number of closings that I want. Uh, so I guess it's, uh, there's a lot of different pieces to the puzzle, but ultimately I can pull all of those together if the idea is that we're going to turn around and execute like that, yeah. not in a way that is, well, I've got to hit that bookings number, so let's do whatever we have to do to hit it. Right. And and uh, Yarke and Nicole mentioned that you kind of knew more of this algebra coming into it mm -hmm. than, than most. Um, were there certain blogs that you were reading or podcasts or, or books in particular that you were kind of using as a playbook? Yeah, I would say, um, you know, one that I could recommend is Saster. Uh, overall, that I believe gives a very holistic, uh, has a very holistic approach to SaaS businesses, and without necessarily focusing on like sales over customer or customer over marketing, it gives this very holistic uh, view mm -hmm. that helps a lot. But clearly, there are a lot of books and resources that you have to find that are specifically targeted towards. Uh, the departments or the functions of your business. Yeah. So you're, have you, in your entrepreneurial journey, is that how you've kind of given yourself primers in each section? Because I know there's a lot of entrepreneurs out there who are just like, I just go by instinct. You know, like uh, Gary Vaynerchuk being one of those people who's like, I've never read a business book in my <laughs> life. I've written, you know, X number of New York Times bestsellers, but I've never read a book, you know? Right. Yeah. Uh, sounds, sounds like that hasn't been your approach. I mean, I, I would say there's not one 
perfect way to do things. So I totally respect it if different people totally. have different views. I mean, to me, it's all about surrounding myself, su- surrounding myself with people that are smarter than me mm-hmm. at their respective fields, right? Uh, because at the end of the day, like n- no matter who you are, if you if you if someone that has done this, you know, a year ago tells you exactly what they have been through, that will help you, right? Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, I think. As an entrepreneur, you you have to have the right mentors. And once again, going back to fundraising, you got to keep in mind that it's not only about how much money you raise, what's what's your pre-money valuation, post-money valuation. It's I mean, clearly those are very important <laughs> things. Don't don't forget about those things. But at the end of the day, who are you surrounding yourself with, right? Who are your partners? Uh, the the analogy that we have in our company here in Socio is we are building a rocket ship, right? And we as the team of Socio are the pilots and the crew of this rocket ship, right? And fundraising is basically the fuel, the rocket fuel. Uh, you need to have good ground control. You need to have good co-pilots that are leading you and uh, that are that are helping you lead your spaceship. Uh, that that's that's how I look at it, right? So surround yourself with good people, in my opinion. And reading is pretty much the same thing there, right? It's it's just a more scalable way to get knowledge from someone who is not necessarily coming next to you to tell you the story. Instead, they ended up writing it somewhere so that they can distribute it a lot better. So uh, to me, it, it's all the same. Uh, if the writer has experienced what I'm experiencing or what I am going to be experiencing in the next few years by reading that, I could I could navigate situations a lot better. And in terms of that ground control that you were building and that, that crew, uh, I know Nicole was one of those people. Were there, was there another mentor even earlier on when considering like even to raise capital or how to raise capital or who to raise it from yeah i mean i'll give one example i've been working with ade yeah uh, ade olano uh, form stack uh he's one he's of been our, on the podcast before yeah, yeah yeah he's he's one of our uh angel investors as well uh i mean i don't know how to even like this describe this experience you know ade has been through uh it a different, a few different roads of entrepreneurship before with with his previous ventures. One where he pretty much bootstrapped to a very big success. The other one, he he ended up raising a lot of money. So uh, as a mentor, as a mentor, uh, Ade could bring in uh, tremendous value because he knows both sides of the game, right? And I I would say he he he's one of those folks that I am. Uh, talking to, I would say, a few times a week. What are some of the early lessons that you learned from a day, or what's one of your favorite lessons that <laughs> yeah. that you learned? Yeah, this is this is one that he he told me. Like I said, he pretty much, I mean, almost bootstrapped one business to uh, be very success to be very successful. Formstack, and uh, he also had a other thrive. Uh, with uh, Formspring, I believe, where he where he raised a lot of money. Uh, as an operator, clearly, before you raise money, you ask yourself the question of how am I going to deploy this? What is the best best strategy to deploy this? Because mm-hmm. as you move from an execution mode to the management mode and the deployment mode, 
it's it's no longer about you working 100 hours a week you certainly should try doing that it definitely helps but you got to make the resources work right you got to make the money work you got to deploy in the correct way to get the ROI that you want and once again going back to the first point I made that should be the only reason why you're raising money is because you you know that you know how it's going to turn out in, in my opinion once again uh, one thing that Ade told me was he said if if you had hundred dollars or let's say hundred thousand dollars or a million dollars if you're trying to solve the same problem he he said that in his experience uh he 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 realized that you end up spending the same multiples of the money uh so just you just spend hundred thousand dollars and a million dollars at the same time on the same problem yes it might help you resolve it a little bit faster otherwise so when, when he told this story to me i i really uh dive a lot a lot deeper into my financial model mm-hmm. to see i mean because it, it makes a lot of sense right just just because you have a lot more capital to deploy doesn't mean that you can't do it in an inefficient way mm-hmm. so you have to be a lot more careful because guess what you know 10 million dollars could be a lot of money when you have 20 employees in your company but once you have 200 employees in your company that money burns very 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 fast yeah and this is music to my ears by the way <laughs> keep talking i yeah. like this yeah <laughs> i mean so you, you got to be very smart about it right and uh, he he told me a lot of stories about how he navigated through situations uh, how how he led his team i mean it's 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 so valuable it's unbelievable and as you're going through your fundraising um from my standpoint uh, you know our our conversations our financial conversations vacillate between um again some of this more holistic you know setting kpis or okrs for each of our teams and making sure they're all driving toward a common goal but that common goal always comes back to commitments i want to make to my investors and that fiduciary responsibility that Yarkin feels at the top. So, yeah. um, and that helps me. That that helps me. And as far as um, I think you asked earlier, you know, what what things do are people do you see that people don't know when they come to the table? And to have that two year goal, even if it's a big audacious goal, yeah. having that two year goal that's that's um, quantifiable that I can say, okay, there I'm going to lock that in, and we're going to go for that, um, and measure our success against it and adapt as quickly as possible. I think you'd like to adapt daily. And I think today you alluded to, we'll meet with accounting every two days. Sometimes <laughs> it can go too far. I think he was joking. But we... Uh, but I have, think he just likes sh- spending time with you. <laughs> Could be. <laughs> I like spending time with him. But but two days is a lot. But we'll be um, managing those you know, at minimum weekly. And, and again, getting as, as far ahead of where, where we're off those goals and what we can do to correct the ship. Yeah. The rocket ship. Keep yep. your analogy going. Exactly. Well, and they keep that analogy going when you're talking about uh, putting rocket fuel in. It's a different stage of the company. Your crew is probably doing different things. Like your your flight crew, your your people in the actual. I don't know if you call it cockpit, but like in the actual shuttle, um, are doing different things once that rocket fuel is ignited and you're taking off. Yeah. How 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 did things shift once you brought on angel investment? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, I would say this is one of the things that I thought about a lot before accepting any any money into the company as well, because at the end of the day, your your culture is very important when you're first getting started. Right. Every single person that you hire actually contributes to that culture a lot and like uh, uh, helps you build that culture as well. And uh, just like that culture. Yeah. Or can hurt that culture Mm -hmm. as well. You you have to be very careful. Right. Right. 
just like we should as entrepreneurs, as founders, as executives, worry about and question, uh, ask questions about how are we going to scale our operations? How are we going to scale our, uh, our people, right? How are we going to scale marketing? How are we going to scale sales? Uh, we should also be asking ourselves, how are we going to scale our culture, mm-hmm. right? Because I, I feel like it's one of those things that we uh, entrepreneurs don't uh, think a lot about. And I, I, I could totally see it, you know, uh, kind of being one of the million problems that you're trying to solve, one of the million things that you're trying to accomplish. But I think it's one of the one of the biggest elements in there as well. Uh, so you're, you're absolutely right, though. Uh, things are going to change. And the mindset shift that I mentioned earlier about, you know, uh, execution mindset to deployment and management uh, mindset, that, that also applies to all of your employees as well. I mean, the, that mindset shift has to happen. And I think the companies have to communicate that very clearly with their, uh, with their employees, with, the, with their teammates and set those expectations very well. Tactically, how did you do that at Socio? Yeah, so it's something still that we are trying to do. I don't think it's a, I don't think it's one of those things that is on your to-do list and you, you check it when, right. when it's done. I think it's a continuous thing that you have to do. Sure. One of the first things that we did was to hire actually a chief of staff, uh, right, that actually helps me and helps, helps kind of scale me, mm-hmm. right? Scale the CEO to make sure that we can still pay attention to everything, including our people. We can still listen to our people. Uh, one of the things that we are currently doing, and this is one of our uh, open job positions, so I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and nice plug. Yep, I'll, I'll go ahead and plug here. <laughs> All right, hiring listen a, up, listeners. Yep, <laughs> we are hiring a head of people slash head of talent yeah. to actually help us scale that culture e- even better and even more, I would say, intentionally, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Because the, the culture does scale, but if you don't control how it scales, then you don't know where it's going to go. So you need, you need folks that are very focused on this, in my, in my opinion, and that's why we are hiring this uh, position right now. Have, Nicole, can you talk to me a little bit about how you've seen this play out at other companies and, and where some of those <laughs> pitfalls might be as a company is shifting into the funded uh, part of their journey? Yeah, I I mean, it it can be, I think it all goes together what he said. You get this influx of cash and then you decide you're going to hire, you know, 20 salespeople and um, you you put five, again, these are generalities, but you put five values on the wall and think... We're going to be great, you know, and, um, and that that's really common because the the CEOs that I work with at, at these scale up startup tech companies are just incredibly busy. I mean, just wearing every possible hat, um, and they aren't necessarily. Um, it is an art. There is no science to it. So. Um, being purposeful about having multiple voices in the room, like his chief of staff, that can say that person's not a fit, you know, um, and making sure that as you're deploying and most of the resources in in the world that that we live in is are people that we're deploying in terms of dollars, uh, that those people are a good fit and we're hiring at the right pace. Today we had a conversation about incentive plans, and it the word culture was used. We don't want something that's not going to incentivize people, but we also want to create a collaborative culture between you know sales and customer support, as an example. Um, so keeping that always front of mind and recognizing it as an art, and not um, getting out over your skis in terms of thinking you can truly put twenty bodies in, in twenty chairs and not have it impact your culture. Yeah. You know? So. Yeah. 
Right. And when you think about deploying that rocket fuel, how much of that rocket fuel in general are you seeing companies, especially in the early stages, put into talent? Oh, I mean, the vast majority. Yeah, yeah the vast majority. I see some outsourced um, development, but, you know, in, in our in the B2B SaaS space, it's it's all about, you know, the the getting those meetings and getting that closes or getting traffic to your site. And in those cases, you know, you're seeing a lot of um, support. You're seeing lead gen or you're seeing um, AEs or SDRs, BDRs coming in. And um, and that's a, a hard, that's a lot of, there's a lot of turnover in that position because we do see a lot of that approach of, you know, put 20 bodies in chairs the minute we get the cash and let's see what they can do. And then you have some turnover or, uh, you have some you have people that are kind of pulling in different directions or it negatively impacts your culture or collaboration or collaborative environment. And that causes a lot of issues within your company uh, and creates, frankly, more work for the CEO. Um, you know, something that, that I think is pretty exciting that is a direction I think Powder Keg's taking is, is to really not only put the responsibility on the businesses to understand and communicate their culture, but put a responsibility on the talent to say, I want to evaluate a place I want to be. I want to understand that this is a fit for me. This is a fast pace. This is a slower pace. This is a you know work from home, work at the office. Evaluate really what those things are that you need. Make sure that you're marrying your talent and your needs with the culture of the company you're going to. Yeah, because neither neither the company or the talent wants it to not work out. Exactly. Oh, yeah. No, I've never heard someone right. say, "I hope to leave in two years." Right. That's not, you know, that's just not the case. But it <laughs> yeah. does happen, and it's you know, for me, it's um, I, you know, I, I joke sometimes that I think you have even better numbers than I do on this, but it's extremely expensive. I mean, it, it really is, and it is. It's very distracting for the CEO, and it's um, it's hard on the staff. Yeah. So the the numbers that we saw was. Um, 50 to 250 percent of salary of annual salary to replace someone okay. someone who churns yeah. um, in an early stage company. I'd be I'd buy that, yeah. Yeah, yep. And it's interesting too when you think about that that like losing uh, losing someone from your team that you're not prepared to lose. It especially when you're a team of 10 or less, oh, it's you're losing so disruptive 10 percent or more of your staff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and their training and their institutional knowledge and, you know, all of those the things. The effects on it's, culture as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, Yarkin, can you tell me a little bit about your recruitment process? How do you how do you currently vet culture fit at Socio? Yeah, absolutely. First, let me tell you a little bit about our culture. Sure. Uh, yeah, I would love we'll to hear. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, one phrase to really summarize our culture is the fact that we care. Right. That's that's why you yeah. asked me this question a few days ago as well. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 simply we care. We care about our customers. We care about our product, our market. We care about our uh, community. Uh, but most importantly, we care about our people. At the end of the day, we are not a manufacturing company. You know, we don't own machines. We don't have big facilities. All we have is bright people. Right. And bright people build bright, amazing products. They uh, they build amazing companies. So at the end of the day, we care about our people and we believe that the way to win in today's market and it's very competitive no matter which which you know which uh, customer you're running after which budget you're running after it is very competitive i think the the way to win is to simply out care everyone else <laughs> I right. like that. Isn't that the coolest? Yeah, I like that. A I lot. did. I asked him this a few yeah. days ago, and I had to take a moment. But that's one. Yeah. That's great. I love yeah. it. We simply have to care more than anyone else have, right? And care about your team more than any other company out there. Care about your team. Care customers. because you know, care about your team. Care about your customers. Care about 
why why you exist, why your product exists, the problem that you're trying to solve. But it all it all goes down to caring about your people because if you don't care about your people, they're not going to care about your business. They're not going to care about your customers. So you have to care about them first. So when we are hiring people, we try to hire people that are willing to care, right? How do you vet that? Mm-hmm. You know, it's... It's it's hard. It's it's definitely hard. And I I have been asked this question uh, in one of our like state of socio kind of like uh, meetings where one other thing that we do is like we value extreme transparency. We believe that people have the right to know what's going on, even if it is you know no matter if it is good, bad, or ugly. Uh, in one of those meetings, I, I have been asked this. Uh, first of all, let me go ahead and tell you that I don't have the perfect answer for that, right? I, 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 I make mistakes. I learn. I try to get better. I try to come up with better personas. I think one of the things that we do is we, we take things to the next step. Let, let me give you an example. When we are hiring someone, we usually like to give them assignments. Mm-hmm. We give them a small assignment, you know, if this person is a... Uh, maybe marketing executive, we give them uh, some data and say, how would you optimize this experience? If they're a content person, we give them a, you know, content piece to write, right? If they are an, uh, we even had like an SDR um, simulation type of thing where people had to leave a voicemail to a potential client. And we, we do these things and a lot of people freak out because they say like, hey, I mean, the talent pool is not big enough. And when you do things like this, you know, some people are not willing to do it. Well, guess what? That's exactly what I'm looking for. Yeah. If you're not willing to take a few hours maybe to show me what you're capable of doing and how much you care, uh, it's uh, most likely we definitely, uh, we probably don't want to work with you anyways. I right? like that example a lot. Yeah. Well, I know you've grown a lot of your team here in Indiana, you know, starting out in West Lafayette, now offices in Indianapolis, mm-hmm. but also in Istanbul. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about why you chose to have uh, those two locations to, as, as the majority of your team? Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, first of all, I am originally from Turkey. I so see the it, connection it, there. It, it, <laughs> you know, a lot of people think that that's the only reason. Sure. It, it really isn't. It is definitely one of the reasons. Uh, and and the reason for that is because understanding the culture, you know, understanding the way people work is, is very important before you open up international offices. I mean, if you read case studies on this, there are a lot of catastrophes of people just opening up, you know, an office in here, an office in there, and it just it just doesn't work out. What's, the, what's unique about the culture in Istanbul? You know... Particularly like working in tech. Yeah. Uh, first of all, tech is definitely something that's, you know, like c- coming out slowly. It's not as as uh, wide. The market is not as wide as it is here. Uh, the talent is there, though. You know, there's a, a lot of talented people, amazing people that are capable of doing a lot of things. Um, the issue is there's the market is not big enough right so it's, it's kind of like underserved so we see that as a huge opportunity mm-hmm. and you know if, if you ask me about culture i think one of the things uh, istanbul and uh, turkish people overall are uh, very well known with is, is hospitality mm-hmm. uh, how nice people are to yeah. you i mean if and if you visit istanbul this this will be kind of like mind mind-blowing to you people are like okay wow this is actually crazy uh and i i think that that applies on business as well Right, people. People like to live like that and do business like that as well, and and, and it is different. Uh, but I would say it it fits into our culture. So it's it's actually it's, it it has actually worked very well. We currently have uh, 
uh, around 10 folks there. Uh, we are hoping to get that up to 20, 30 in the, in the near future. Well, and talk to me about the culture in Indianapolis. Why, why indie? I mean, you mentioned customers like Google and Microsoft that, you know, I know their HQ one isn't here in Indianapolis. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, why not go out to the Valley? Why not, uh, go to New York city? Yeah. First of all, I don't think the value that being in those places used to have is, I, I don't see a huge value in being there, right? L let me give you an example. We were in West Lafayette, Indiana, in a small uh, office, like a tiny, like like as, as big as this room, think about that, with like five, six people, right? Oh my gosh. And we were already selling products to England, to Canada. It doesn't matter. Right, I totally understand that if you're in play in a like a major mm -hmm. enterprise play, your customers might expect you to be uh, as close to them as possible, and I I don't think there's anything wrong with that. All I'm saying is like I think we should all come to the understanding that you do not have to be in one of these places to build amazing companies. Mm -hmm. You really don't, and data shows this. Right? What What's the benefit of being in a place like Indianapolis? I mean, it's. I think, yeah. I think it's, it's, it's very beneficial. Well, first yeah. of all, the competition is very, very low compared to these other, by, by no means competition is ever low, but uh, it's, 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 it's a lot lower compared to these other places, right? Uh, cost of living is great. Mm -hmm. Access to capital is getting better and better mm -hmm. and better, right? And once again, it's not only about the competition to hire the right people, it's also about keeping them, right? Ret retaining talent as well. These are very massive challenges for companies that are in San Francisco, that are in New York. Once again, I don't think there's anything wrong with being there. Uh, I, I just think that it's, it, it, it's, it's time that we all come to the realization that you don't have to be in one of these places to raise a lot of money. You don't have to be in one of these places to be very successful, hire the best people. Uh, I, I think you can be anywhere. Nicole, any other context you want to give to the culture here in Indianapolis and what you've seen shift over the last two decades? It's it's shifted dramatically, and it's been it's been incredibly fun to watch. It's it's and it's beyond just again that that those angel investors and um, and having Purdue locally or or you know other universities that are bringing talent to the city. It really has been kind of a, a joint effort. I think a lot of a confluence of a lot of different things. You know, obviously Salesforce being here is powerful, but over the years it has been. Um, it, 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 there's been a very purposeful energy from organizations like yours uh, toward retaining talent, mm -hmm. toward good legislation in our favor, and and certainly toward um, uh, bringing capital in and and you know not at all to discount those, those these people that have have really encouraged capital or created a network of capital that staying in Indiana has changed the game, and it's been I'd say in the past. I mean, it's really even been less than 10 years that you've really, the momentum has started to really increase by multiples every year. And yeah. and it's becoming also, I think, a, an important dialogue, you know, attending the, the IBJ Tech Breakfast recently, and they that, that was a big influence was, you know, certainly we're seeing a lot of, you know, we still see, you know, the, the, the number of exits, the number of stories coming out of the East and West Coast far surpass the volume coming out of here, but the momentum is all in these, these yeah. smaller markets. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and you speak of momentum, you know, before we close here, 
Yarkin, do you mind maybe sharing what you're most excited about at Socio and kind of where you guys are in terms of growth right now? Working with Nicole? Is that your yeah, absolutely. <laughs> most excited about working yeah. with most Nicole. Most excited about that. Yeah. Second. Uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, we are going to be getting into a major growth mode here yes. and we'll be hiring... I would say at least 20, 30 more folks in the next next few years. Nice. Uh, and uh, we'll be moving our offices very soon because we are growing out of it. Within uh, Indy, not <laughs> out of yeah, Indy. Yeah, <laughs> within Indy, within, within literally two blocks. Nice. Uh, yeah. Uh, I am very excited about that. We are hiring a lot of folks. Uh, so if, if the listeners, if they're interested, <laughs> they should really go to our careers page and take a look at it. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Well, and if, uh, if you want to get connected to more talent, uh, definitely check out uh, powderkeg.com. Uh, it's a great place, whether you're an employer or a professional who just wants to see what else is out there in your market, whether it's in indie or elsewhere. Lots of great companies like Socio we're trying to connect talent with. Um, and ultimately, I, I just want to say uh, thanks for sharing your experiences. I hope we have you back on the show soon uh, to share sort of more of an update of where that growth is. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thanks for being here. That's it for today's show. Thanks so much for listening. Also, huge thanks, of course, to Nicole Wallace and uh, Yarkin. Just Yarkin. I'll just say Yarkin <laughs> of Socio Labs. For links to their, prof- their social profiles and the other people, companies, and resources mentioned in this episode, head on over to powderkeg.com and check out the show notes. Also, if you're looking for a tech job uh, in tech, if you're looking for a job in tech, to ignite your career. Go to powderkeg.com to get started. Totally free. We're really just trying to create a better connected tech ecosystem here. Uh, And to be among the first to hear the stories about entrepreneurs, investors, and other tech leaders outside of Silicon Valley, subscribe to us on iTunes at powderkeg.com forward slash iTunes. Catch you next time on Powderkeg Igniting Startups.